This is episode 260, and today we're chatting about how food sensitivities create inflammation in the brain and what symptoms may feel like and look like. Now, our two guests, Rochelle and Brenna, are highly qualified. In fact, their bios were so long. This is probably about the eighth time I've recorded this introduction because I keep getting stuck because they're like powerful human beings that have done so, so many things. I've tried to highlight all the amazingness in the following. <laughs> Dr. Rochelle Hansen received her doctorate of clinical psychology at the University of North Dakota. And because of her unique background in biochemistry, education, and psychology, Dr. Hansen envisioned a clinic that would consider all three. She loves her team. She's really, really integrated with brain and body and bringing them all together to create whole person care. Now, Brenna Thompson is a registered and licensed dietitian. She has a master's degree in applied nutrition. She's passionate about teaching people how to use foods and how they interact with the body and getting them to really understand how these foods are at the root of any of the imbalances they experience. Now, Brenna believes that no one eating style is right for every person. And I couldn't believe in that more. And that's how I've really gone about my entire business. So these two humans are going to be taking over the show today. I'm so excited to share their work. And if you're looking for a different narrative when it comes to the ketogenic diet and many of the things that both of our guests talk about today, head on over to ketodietbook.com. I've written three different paperbacks. You can get them just about anywhere, but ketodietbook.com outlines each three, uh, the Keto Diet, Keto Diet Cookbook, and Keto for Women. So again, that's ketodietbook.com. If you have questions about today's content, go to healthfulpursuit.com slash contact and ask me. Also, you can catch up on previous podcast episodes and notes from today's show by going to KetoDietPodcast.com. Okay, let's do this thing. Hey, I'm Leanne Vogel. You're listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. I've created a free guide with tips on how to start keto and maintain your fat-fueled life. Grab it at HealthfulPursuit.com slash free as a little thank you for listening to the show. Hi, I am Brenna Thompson, licensed and registered dietitian. I am here today with my boss and founder of Stepping Stone Clinic, licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Rochelle Hansen. Leanne has been kind enough to let us take over the podcast today and chat about how food sensitivities can create inflammation in the brain and what symptoms those might cause. And at Stepping Stone Clinic, Dr. Hansen has always taught me to come back to our why. Like, why is nutrition important for me, especially with regards to brain health? Well, my family has a long history of severe depression, anxiety, dementia, disordered eating, alcoholism, bipolar disorder. I think there's probably some hoarding in there as well, um, and even suicide. And I will say that I am by no means the picture of perfect mental health. You know, I don't meditate, even though I keep thinking in the midst of this coronavirus epidemic that maybe I should think about taking it up. I can definitely worry about things in a very Minnesota fashion by holding in all of my feelings. And I'm not always consistent about keeping appointments with my own therapist. But even I won't all tell. of this. <laughs> you won't tell. <laughs> nope. uh, even with all of this, I have decided that these mental health issues stop with me and I will do what I can to prevent passing them on to my children and letting them affect or destroy my family. And when it comes to my nutrition, I have found that eating well by avoiding processed carbs and sugar and therefore keeping my blood sugar very well balanced keeps me much more sane 
And it makes me a better mom, a better wife, and a better employee, which I'm sure Dr. Hansen is appreciative of. Well, Brenna, I appreciate you asking me to do this. First of all, I think we've become friends too, hopefully over these last almost three years of working together. I super, super enjoy your knowledge here at the clinic and and your why for why you do things. And I love how that you recognize that though sometimes it's not our fault, um, some of the maybe the genetics that we carry, but it is our responsibility maybe to carry, to take care of things. So that's why we're here. So you had asked me a little bit about me. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and my first degree was actually in biochemistry. And there I developed a love and fascination for the body and how it works at both a micro and macro level. And while I was studying as an undergrad for a pre-med major, my professors, this was 25 years ago, you know, told us that we would soon eat our medicine, that food would be the next pharmacy, nutraceuticals would be part of that, and that our gut and enemas would even be part of your, someone's prescriptions. And of course, that was 25 years ago. So I always am shaking my head when people say that uh, pharmacy, food pharmacy and eating your, you know, the food mood connection and gut and brain health is considered new age or something new because it's not new at all, all the way to Hippocrates. But we, we know that this is a connection that's there. And I feel really passionate about helping my patients learn more about that. I've always been fascinated about working with our body and our brain. And I always say, let's work with your brain instead of against it. And that's important to me. I love that process and people, I feel very privileged to be part of that with, you know, it's a very vulnerable space, a very personal space and really kind of sacred grounds for patients. And I respect that, but also now I'm a real person. <laughs> so I have a gaggle of children. I have five children and I don't all of us and my family, we don't necessarily eat or act perfectly by any means. I really like some of the stories from when your kids were even younger. Yep. Or even just recently. Yep. So, yep. I'm, you know, I, I'm in the trenches too. And, and also I have diabetes. And so I struggle keeping to what I know I quote air quote should eat. But one thing I have learned over the years is to be better at listening to my body and specifically my gut in helping my health, my whole health, which includes our mental health. So Dr. Hanson, when you started Stepping Stone Clinic, you had a vision of integrating psychology and nutrition and helping people heal their minds and heal their emotions through therapy and through better nutrition practices. And since 2016, the clinic has really grown, and we now have five psychologists, a social worker, our homework help program, wellness classes, and a behavioral health coordinator who really helps our patients get to the how when it comes to making changes. So if people are interested in more of what we offer, they can check out our website, steppingstonecliniqmn.com. And as a dietitian, I get to work with any and all of our psychology patients, as well as anyone who simply needs a nutritionist to help them deal with gut issues, autoimmune conditions, infertility, blood sugar regulation, you name it. Yes, we do send some complex patients your way and you do a great job with them. Right. So that you, you are exactly right. I envisioned a clinic um, and luckily I'm privileged to work with very intelligent people to help make it happen where we can look at how foods and nutrients affect the brain. 
And, you know, we say things like, I feel it in my gut when we make a decision, or I felt butterflies in my stomach when we're nervous. And that's really detecting signals um, from what scientists call your second brain. Medicines understand those links between digestion, mood, health, and even the way you think, like in ruminative tendencies, um, depressive rumination, or obsessive compulsive thoughts even. And in fact, the enteric nervous system known as the ENS, so the enteric nervous system, that's the system that lines the gut. And this is just so cool to me that those cells are similar to the cells in the brain and in the inside of the brain. In fact, there's even a whole discipline dedicated to understanding this gut-brain connection. It's called neurogastroenterology. And maybe in my second life, I will be a neurogastroenterologist or a professional dancer because I can't dance and I wish I could. <laughs> but <laughs> what was, I'll have to let you know which one happens. But, but yeah, there's this whole line of study of that um, gut-brain reaction and connection. And I've seen this firsthand in my patients. I'll give you an example. I had a patient, I have a patient with OCD and we were, she worked with you, Brenda, and mm -hmm. we were working on her regulating emotions as well. And we found that they really coincided with two things. One, her blood glucose regulation and also with her menstrual, menstrual cycle and the hormonal changes that happened. And I think we were able to look at some of those nutrition deficiencies. Interestingly enough, she had some salt deficiencies in her diet. If you remember that, mm -hmm. magnesium yep. one, she used DIM, which was an estrogen binding product. She's pretty good at tracking her um, cycle. And so she can take that preemptively. She also had a history of substance abuse and we have been able to keep her clean and sober, which I'm so excited to say that even as some of the major stressors our world is having um, for, gosh, now it's been five years and the last three years, she's really upped her game and thriving as she's looked at the, the way that her body is sensitive. And what's interesting, she thought she had ADHD and she, um, we did testing. She did not have ADHD, but she was having that brain green fog. And that was making her feel like she couldn't remember. I think we're going to talk a little bit about that too. And, you know, I, we don't say that we replace medications. People ask me that a lot. Um, no, I, I think that medications have a healthy, healthy place in some people's neurochemistry. But again, we have a healthy respect for that. But I also want people to have the lowest dose possible if there's side effects that aren't working, that aren't working with them. Again, remember, I want to work with their brain and our body and not against it. And sometimes medications can have side effects, unintended side effects that are often intolerable for some people. So it's kind of cool. And I think I remember that kid that we saw that we got feedback from the teacher that said, oh, you went and see Dr. Hansen. What medication did they put him on? Yes. <laughs> Yep. And he did. We hadn't put him on any medication. We had made some changes um, to his diet and nutraceuticals. So I love those stories. They get me excited. They, yes, me too. Raise your hand if you feel like you're drinking too much caffeine. This is me raising my hand. Yep. Totally me. Guilty. Can't go through the morning without it, right? Can't go through the afternoon without it. But then you're experiencing energy crashes and you're like, what the heck is going on? Is this the ketogenic diet? So when we start eating keto, we drink a lot more fatty coffees and then we start to feel a little bit funky, you know, like all jittery and busy in our head. This is why I switched over to Four Sigmatic, which combines organic fair trade coffee with nature's most powerful superfoods to give you a blend of coffee goodness that's way, 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 way less in caffeine. 
If you haven't heard of these superfoods, chaga and lion's mane, look them up or just trust me that they're awesome. And they support and act as a bodyguard to keep you well without the unnatural buzz of caffeine. You make it like coffee, it tastes like coffee, but it has less of the after effects of coffee and more of the awesome effects that a cup of joy will give you. You like what I did there? Cup of joy, cup of joe. <laughs> so Four Sigmatic, if you want to give them a try, you can go to foursigmatic.com slash keto. They're offering 20% off all immune support bundles plus an additional 15% off everything when you use my link. Again, that's foursigmatic.com slash keto for as much as 35% off. Enjoy. So as I mentioned earlier in today's show is about how food sensitivities can create inflammation in the brain. We're going to focus on a couple of specific foods and then switch over to food additives, including artificial dyes and folic acid. So we're just going to jump in right now and start with everyone's favorite food villain, gluten. Yes, gluten. Dun, dun, dum. <laughs> gluten in the ne- next. I bet you were going to talk about dairy. As one of my children protested, when did you take an all-out war against dairy in our house? <laughs> when, we, when we went dairy-free, he's being a little bit of drama because we were dairy-free for some time. So yeah, so our, you know, our topic today is, you know, is your brain inflamed and how those food sensitivities can create inflammation in the brain and what those symptoms look like. So Let's start with gluten. I love the book, uh, The Grain Brain by uh, physician Dr. David Perlmutter, Perlmutter, which I know you're familiar with that. He takes a comprehensive look at that research. And there's some interesting research about gluten and how it acts in the body like an opioid, which is fascinating. So it gives you that high and then it has a down and it gives you those exorphins. And we have found that there's a gluten sensitivity and genome for gluten sensitivity is comorbid in psychiatric and neurodevelopmental conditions like autism, depression, schizophrenia. And we found that uh, in research that even people with asymptomatic celiac disease, meaning they don't have the typical gut symptoms of the disease, but they still have those genetic markers, we found that they present with autism, depression, schizophrenia, dementia, dementia, ADHD, epilepsy, anxiety, chronic pain, depression, even decreased libido. So we know that there is an impact from gluten and how it is metabolized and how that can present itself in a psychiatric way or a neurodevelopmental way. And so what this means is that just because you carry the genes for celiac disease does not mean that you will develop it at all or in the typical fashion and have the typical symptoms of abdominal pain, gas, bloating, diarrhea, or constipation. But this study, uh, there was a study from 2015, and it points out that when you have these different genes, you're more susceptible to developing celiac disease, but you're also more susceptible to developing these different asymptomatic forms of the disease. And I'm guessing that most doctors and psychologists and other mental health practitioners are probably not recommending that their depressed or schizophrenic patients go on a gluten-free diet for a couple months to see if they notice a difference. But maybe that should be part of their care. So let's look at how gluten actually affects the brain. 
Um, well, Brenna, we actually do recommend that help our depressed <laughs> patients. Um, we help them go off gluten or other uh, food sensitivities that are causing inflammation. And I think most doctors and health practitioners, you know, they understand about disease beginning in the gut. And um, that's been around since Hippocrates. We know that connection. But like I said earlier, it's not become mainstream and it's often looked as maybe a correlative data. What's really fascinating is inflammatory foods like gluten, they affect the brain by altering the activity in our gut brain access, which is the vasovagal system. Now, this is a bi-directional communication system between the nervous system and the gut. Remember that enteric nervous system that we talked about, the ENT, and the central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord. And that gut-brain access links to our gut function and our emotional and cognitive, meaning like thought processes in the brain. It's so cool. Um, there's these studies where they can like track those messages and it's fascinating. So those factors that affect your digestion, like diet or your microbiome, those ultimately do affect your brain function. And so those celiac and even non-celiac gluten sensitivities, they create inflammation in the gut. And then through that gut brain access causes inflammation and create that dysfunction in the brain. You know, sometimes we call it like brain fog or grain fog. We've also found that like I said, it's implicated in dementia, schizophrenia, and bipolar. In fact, um, there's been a couple studies out of John Hopkins and UCLA where they've actually been able to reduce the symptoms of schizophrenia, bipolar, by reducing that gut inflammation. And that's, to me, that's pretty amazing. In fact, one of my favorite studies I like to cite is out of Hopkins where they're continuing to do this and following a cohort of people with bipolar and reducing gut inflammation through probiotics and special diets. And they've shown that they can reduce those bipolar symptoms compared to their control group and reduce their hospital rates and their duration of their mania symptoms and mania periods by several days, um, sometimes eliminating the need to have hospital at all, which is pretty amazing, especially if you have a loved one with bipolar. So this isn't just vitamin companies saying eat this and feel better. These are random controlled blind studies. This is top-notch gold standard research protocols where people don't know, you know, the people studying them don't know which group is which, and they're able to find this connection. So that's, to me, that's more of a, more than a correlation. That is a connection. That's pretty cool. And this gut-brain axis is why we might get diarrhea when we're anxious or why we get butterflies in our stomach when we fall in love. I was actually talking just today with a patient uh, who, since all of this COVID virus stuff has come out, um, is now experiencing IBS symptoms for the first time in years. And we just talked about, okay, how can we really support your gut health right now and also your brain health at the same time. Yes, I know. It's like, it's fascinating to me. And also constipation too. I laughed mm -hmm. when you said the Minnesota, you don't have to TMI about your gut health, but oh. we know that patients that repress or hold back, retain emotions will actually have constipation, which is really fascinating. If you think about some of the symbolism, how our body like plays out our emotional health as well. So, so yeah, that enteric nervous system, that ENT can trigger those big emotional shifts. 
and it's funny that you mentioned IBS because people coping with IBS and other functional bowel pro problems like, you know, constipation or bloating or stomach upset, you know, for a long time, researchers and doctors thought that anxiety and depression contributed to those problems. In fact, IBS used to be considered a psychosomatic disorder and was not considered a medical disorder until the last, I think it's been about three decades, two decades. Same with fibromyalgia, which we now know those are not psychosomatic, meaning your brain and, and really what does psychosomatic even mean? I think sometimes we just don't understand the power of the brain and how that's interacting with our bodies. But um, these studies, again, from John Hopkins, those, those neurogastroenterologists um, that I love that um, their work and, and some other studies have also showed that this is actually maybe the other way around, meaning that irritation in the GI system and that gastrointestinal system, that actually may send signals to the central nervous system and that triggers mood changes. So instead of anxiety creating that diarrhea, like the diarrhea creating anxiety per se, isn't that interesting? Because it, like we said before, it's that bi-directional communication. So this is also why, you know, we find a higher than normal percentage of people with IBS or other functional bowel problems will develop depression and anxiety even before, the, you know, before, if before they started getting IBS symptoms, they didn't promote or, or report that. And some would say, oh, it's because they're having all the problems with IBS, but we've done enough cross-sectional studies across people with different levels of depression and anxiety, and those depressive and anxious symptoms go up with those flare-ups as well, which makes sense because, you know, we're we're going to talk a little bit more about how those neurotransmitters are created in the gut. So if we have disruption in the gut, you know, that's, that's able to have an impact. So we know that, you know, some people can break, so we're going to come back to gluten again. So some people can break down gluten and some people can't. And that's why, you know, that's why those one size fits all diets or elimination diets are not great because some people can eat gluten just fine. And then the people who maybe are unable to digest it, maybe they're going to see um, maybe skin symptoms or, you know, maybe they're going to see those gut symptoms or maybe they're going to see depression or and that's not going to be attributed directly to uh, their sensitivity to the gluten. So the, you know, those, and remember we talked about how gluten can have an exorphin, which is like an opioid compound. So that gives them this, this sense of feeling good, but then that crash as well. So this can happen also my son complaining about us taking a war out on dairy, but this can also happen with casein from our dairy products is not fully digested and, you know, can result in those caseomorphins as well. So, and I think whey too, right? Um, Brent, I think we had a patient who had a sensitivity to whey, the protein that's found in dairy and often used in diet shakes and diet things also had some of those same symptoms. So mm -hmm. fascinating how it can be bi-directional. Yes. So people who are sensitive to these caseomorphins or these opiate-like substances that come from casein from dairy, we've had several patients at the clinic who, as their kids, and when they were coming home from school, they were coming home with kind of like poor report cards from the bus drivers and from their teachers teachers just saying that they were acting very aggressively, getting into fights, just poor behavior. And when I talked with parents about doing kind of the typical things like removing sugar, cutting out gluten, but also removing dairy, 
they said that, you know, doing both dairy and gluten at that time just felt too stressful. And so they chose to just remove dairy out of their kids' diets. And what was amazing was that they did that. And within two days, they stopped getting these bad report cards from both the bus drivers and the teachers. I know. I love those stories, not because kids were in trouble, but because we were able to help them with something that wasn't pharmaceutical. And the parents feel so much better about doing that, especially with young developing brains, adding in a medication to help with mood or help with attention. And, you know, of course, parents are hesitant to do that. And then here we have a change and um, just in what they're eating. And then it makes an impact on their behavior and their learning, which I love. I love hearing that. Those food-derived exorphins that we talked about from like gluten and casein, you know, they we know that they've they've been shown to spontaneous show spontaneous issues and behavior, memory, even pain perception in rodents. And when given um, in supplement form to rodents and they we we noticed that they affected their learning and anxiety of mice. So I know moody mice sounds funny, but it's true. So and and also, interestingly enough, affected symptoms. And there's a mouse model for autism. It, it also affected symptoms in mouse models of autism as well. So definitely have been, we've been able to show this in an in a animal model already. And how would we show this in an animal model? What would a laboratory stressor be for a mouse? Well, normally we like make them do a maze. There's some really cool mazes where they have to like swim and find this like a visible island or we could do electric shock, I guess. These were some things that I did. And I admit I did in undergrad, you know, take an AP test. Just kidding. We don't make mice take AP tests. We only make high school kids stress out about that. <laughs> but the reason why I say that is actually, remember we had that patient that um, we went off gluten and dairy together and you know, worked pretty hard and felt like, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's really making a difference, but I'll do this for six weeks, you know, was kind of willing to try it for six weeks. And the parent noticed a difference. Other people noticed a difference, but the teen didn't really notice a difference yet. And then um, reported that she had had a, a test in AP history and bombed this test and was so anxious about it and felt like she was getting sick. And so we kind of processed through this test and then she stopped right in the middle of the story and went, wait a minute, that morning the school was giving away free bagels and I took a bagel in the morning and just so I figured I should eat something and I didn't even think like I'm not doing that. And she was able to see this direct connection between eating gluten and the impact on her brain and learning and mood. And it was like this light bulb for her. And we talked about, you've been working with your brain tied behind your back, you know, a little bit for a long time and been doing pretty well and yet still having this impact. So yes, we found this in laboratory mice, but we've also found it in the laboratory of real life for, for um, some of our patients. So it's interesting to see, and it's really interesting to see that aha moment for them. That's one of my favorite moments when patients make that aha moment or the light bulb goes off. And I have some patients who definitely notice a difference the same day that they reintroduce gluten or dairy after following an elimination diet. But parents might say their kid's a little bit more moody. They get into fights at school. They have a harder time focusing and doing their homework. And other times, 
I hear that they don't notice a difference on the day of or the day after that they've reintroduced gluten. And research has shown that when patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity followed a gluten-free diet and were re-challenged with gluten intake, it took approximately seven days before their symptoms were provoked or showed up again. So when I have people reintroduce gluten or other questionable foods, I will often tell them to eat that food in several forms over the course of one to three days and then wait several days to see if they notice a difference. And this is because if someone is having an IgA or IgG immune reaction to that food, they probably won't notice a difference on the first day. These types of reactions take a while to show up. Yeah, that's really important to keep that in mind. You know, food, food sensitivities versus food intolerances versus food allergies. I think those words are sometimes used interchangeably and they're not, and that they use different responses. You know, the IgA and the IgG immune response is a different pathway than that of those case and exorphins that we're talking about and the, um, the gluten exorphins. But those symptoms could be the same and making sure that we wait. They also can impact memory and memory is something that you would be impacted over time. You know, that brain fog feels more like inattention or stumbling, you know, but memory is something like over time that you would notice. And as a psychologist, um, I do, you know, we do memory testing and depression and anxiety can impact poor memory. Remember, we're talking about that bi-directional relationship. What's interesting is that memory and depression and anxiety have can have some factors related into genetics and food sensitivities again. In fact, we know that inflammation has gut inflammation has been implicated in dementia, which is really interesting. And some studies have shown that high doses of vitamin E for patients showing signs of dementia can slow down the dementia progression, which Brandon, like you know, vitamin E is um, anti-inflammatory vitamin. So fascinating work, isn't it? It and is. I know I, it's fascinating. So you know, we've learned um, you know that statins, the you know, medication used for cholesterol, that that can impact memory. And we also learned on the opposite side that the inclusion and met- metabolism of wait for it. Fats, you know, if everybody thinks fats is a bad word. It's absolutely not. I know you love to talk about that. You know, those healthy fats are important to memory and cognitive function. You know, omega is important for myelin sheath production. So these are things that are important in cognitive function. You know, what we're eating absolutely affects our brain. Yes, it does. And a 2013 study in neurological sciences used MRIs to evaluate the white and gray matter volumes in the brains of people with celiac disease who were also experiencing balance disturbances, headaches, and sensory loss. And when compared to healthy individuals who did not have celiac disease, they found that patients with celiacs suffered a significant loss of volume above and below the tentorium cerebelli. I hope I got that right. Patients with headaches had the greatest loss compared to those with balance disturbances and sensory loss. Dr. H, what is the, this part of the brain used for, that tentorium cerebelli? Yeah, well, like you said it, the um, cerebelli is used for those balances and sensory loss information. We know, for instance, we know that people with dementia often lose their sense of smell. In fact, one of the tests I use 
to help see if those early signs of dementia are there and are warranted a more further neuropsychological evaluation from a dementia specialist is um, we'll do the peanut butter smell. Can they recognize the smell of peanut butter in a container that they can't see that it's peanut butter? Um, it's fascinating. There's the peanut butter, orange, and I think mint is the other one that's used. So, and then of course, sensory, the sensory and the balance disturbances that we often see. So really fascinating stuff. That's interesting. So then we get back to the how and why gluten might be affecting the brain. And one possible explanation is from gluten-induced autoimmune vasculitis. And in layman's terms, that just means that the blood vessels in the brain are inflamed from an autoimmune reaction. The body is attacking the brain. And an inflamed blood vessel is not going to transport blood and oxygen very well. And this will lead to the destruction and death of that brain tissue. Yep, that's right. That's right. And, you know, we have what's called vascular dementia where we're not getting enough blood flow or we're, you know, or having um, that restricted blood flow, like you said, leading to destruction and death of brain cells as well. And also those with diabetes will have a higher a higher risk for this because their glucose will glycosylate in the those little small capillaries and you know basically kind of becoming like crystals per se and blocking off that restricting that blood flow as well so and we know that it can that free floating blood glucose can create inflammation in blood vessels throughout the body but especially the brain you know another hypothesis of why people lose that white matter is the immune system as well because C1Q is produced by the central nervous system and it can make, um, it marks those strong and weak synapses. So we've seen this, um, this is also a theory for autism as well. And so when it goes and marks those weak synapses, it tells the brain that those synapses or connections should be destroyed. And um, that's called pruning. And it's actually really important because we, you don't want to keep creating synapses because one, you don't have a lot, even your heads would be huge, right? Not symbolically, but really. <laughs> so if we had all these experiences and all these memories and we created more and more neurons and these more s connections, we'd have to sort through all of those and they'd be too much. So we want to be more efficient. So the body, brain goes through and prunes away and marks them. Hey, this is a weak synapse. It doesn't have a great connection. It's not used very often. Let's go ahead and prune it out or destroy it so that we can just be a little bit more you know, better at remodeling that nervous system during times of growth. And it also happens throughout our life. Though um, that increased expression of the C1Q has been observed in patients with Alzheimer's and like I said, autism, schizophrenia. And we know that when C1Q it likes binding to those immunoglobins that, like we said, were attached to that casein and gluten antigen. So those autoimmune responses or that immuno immunological response to casein or gluten because the person's sensitive to it, the C1Q attaches to it. And remember, C1 has an affinity for those immunoglobins. And remember, C1Q is kind of the marker that says, hey, this one this synapse, this neuron's not working so well, go ahead and cut it out. Well, it might tell us important things to cut out or it might not cut out the right ones um, or not go through that process as well. So um, it's really fascinating. We have a lot to learn in this area, but it is pretty fascinating that there's a connection there. Yeah, and as we go back to the beginning of this discussion, when somebody lacks the enzymes to break down gluten or gliadin or casein from milk, the body will produce those antigens or immunoglobulins against those foreign compounds. 
and the C1Q then attaches to those antigens, gets confused since they can sometimes look like other healthy cells, those synapses, and then the body starts to break down our synapses and our connections that we actually wanted and we needed. And that process is sometimes called molecular mimicry. And without those good synapse connections, the brain can't send messages to itself and everything just goes haywire. That's a good word, haywire. <laughs> yes. Right. And, you know, we're still learning about these connections and how that works, but I think it's important to, to, to continue to study this line of work. Did you know that gluten and casein are both high in the amino acid glutamate? So that's an interesting piece about um, amino acid glutamate because that's an important part of brain functioning. It is. And it's funny you should ask because I just learned this after watching a TED talk by Dr. Catherine Reed. And listeners are probably familiar with MSG or monosodium glutamate as a food additive and that it can affect the nervous system. But the amino acid yeah. glutamate found in the MSG is also found in some real whole foods, including gluten-containing grains and dairy. So that glutamate and the you know MSG studies have been shown for a while as a food additive that can create problems, that glutamate's found in either a bound form or a free form, when it's bound to another amino acid, it's fine. But when it's left um, not bound in free form, it's kind of sticky per se. And it can bind to, um, it overloads our digestive system and our nervous system too. So gluten and casein have high levels of unbound glutamate. So, so do a lot of processed foods. And this, um, that, that glutamate can then, is now ready to bind to the nervous system and create problems on the glute on the nervous system as well. So even like healthier processed foods, like whey protein powder, like I mentioned, we had that patient who had that sensitivity to whey protein and even some of those um, collagen powders that are, um, I think you taught me this about the hydrolyzed, I said that wrong, um, <laughs> hydrolyzed, there we go, that even the hydrolyzed collagen powders, like aren't like all collagens, not the same. And you know, because that's kind of all the rage and we're finding that that can actually create more um, nervous system issues. Remember we had that patient who was a bariatric patient, had gone through bariatric surgery and had lost all that weight and felt like life was doing so great. And then about two years post-surgery, she started having all these symptoms. She was a, a practitioner and she, a physician, and she was having all these problems and everybody kept saying, no, you're just stressed. And she started to gain a little bit of the weight back and everybody just said, you know, you're depressed, you're anxious because she was going to get married soon or something like that. And they kept... I just remember there was like, maybe she had just got married. I can't remember the whole story because it was a couple years ago, but she remember that and she came in and she was just convinced that she had ADHD or she was having memory decline and she was really nervous. And I did a neuro battery on her, you know, a neurocognitive battery and she actually had great attention and high IQ and really good memory. And I said, you know, you're, you don't have these functional cognitive effects that you have. Maybe this is something in what you're eating. And I, and I knew that as a bariatric patient, she presented with, you know, the possibility of having a micronutrient deficiency or even a macronutrient deficiency because the limited amount of food that they have and the poor absorption that can happen. And she was like, no, no, I've been, I've been watching my 
protein. I've been counting it. And, you know, everybody keeps telling me that I need to up my protein. And I've been doing that. I remember she was taking, she was drinking like three of those whey protein powder drinks like a day. Yes. And yes. Do you remember her? And I then, do. And then you went and did some lab testing on her and came out that she was super high in that whey sensitivity. And so she went and changed. I can't remember. What did she change to? Uh, we started using with her, I think, a pea protein. That's right. That's right. A for pea- her, and and then you can also do. There's um a hydrolyzed beef protein. Yeah. 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 And then remember, she switched over, and she came back, and her physician was like, "Wow, what what medication?" Again, everybody always thinks it's a medication. Wow, you look great. You've lost weight. You're happy. You're not depressed anymore. And you know, thinking like we had maybe added in SSRI or something like that, and she had changed over. And she was doing everything everyone was telling her to do. She was following all of the rules and all of the protocols, yet nobody took into effect that she was overloading her system with whey that she had a sensitivity to. Yeah. And we're going to have a link to a list of the many different names of food additives that contain free glutamate or create glutamate when digested in the show notes. So if people are interested in that, they will be able to go and find that list. Good. That's great. That's great. Well, the thing about glutamate is that it can activate that nervous system really quickly, almost immediately in some people, but in others, their symptoms don't show up for you know 24 to 48 hours later. So what do you usually tell people to look for if you think they might have that glutamate? Glutamate is causing problems with them. Well, there's a long list of sim- of possible symptoms, but if we are just focusing on neurological symptoms, we might see or experience depression, anxiety, mood swings, confusion, rage, migraines, dizziness, hyperactivity, ADHD, autism, fatigue, or sleepiness, but also for insomnia numbness or tingling, sciatica pain, slurred speech, and tinnitus, more commonly known as ringing in the ears. These are all symptoms, but there are many, many other that will show up as heart problems, skin inflammation, digestive issues, and even respiratory problems like asthma. So that almost seems like a a, um, a list that's too hard to digest in some ways, right? Right. Well, um, yes. So... If someone they if someone thinks they or somebody that they love um, thinks that they are MSGs being an issue for them, what you know what should they do? Well, first avoid the obvious forms of MSG found in processed foods and oftentimes at restaurants. But then start looking for it in other processed foods in your house, including maybe removing other sources of that free glutamate, whether it's from gluten or casein or other hydrolyzed proteins for some people. Okay. And is it listed as MSG in foods or how would you, how would you no. find that? Or does so, it glutamate? So the list that we will have linked on the show, you will see it as like yeast extractives. It'll be listed as flavorings. So the list of the names is it's pretty long. So people might need to print out that list and just take it to the grocery store with them for a while. Okay, cool. You always have all that information. I learned so much from you. So I look forward to looking through more of my food packages so that I can have eye rolls from my teenagers. (laughs) They will thank me when they're older. That's right. 
ButcherBox features 100% grass-fed and finished heritage-bred pork and organic free-range chicken. ButcherBox sends you high-quality, health-promoting meats directly to your door on dry ice and free shipping anywhere in the lower 48. ButcherBox makes committing to quality protein sources less expensive and more available to everyone. Their prices are hard to beat and it's challenging to find a higher quality product anywhere in the USA. I've been using ButcherBox for years and love the convenience of a package showing up just when I need it and their ground sausage is an absolute dream. ButcherBox has put together a super special deal for all listeners of the show. Order your first box and get a special gift plus an additional $20 off. Now this special gift is so epic that I can't even mention it on the episode today. So you'll have to go to butcherbox.com slash keto diet to check out the deal plus get your $20 off your very first order. Again, that's butcherbox.com slash keto diet to check out the deal plus get $20 off your first order. If you're unsure of the link, simply check out today's show notes for all the details. Well, let's change gears here and look at another controversial food additive, synthetic colorings and its effect on behavior. So first, a little history on the topic. Synthetic color additives and hyperactivity was heavily studied in the 1970s and 1980s. A 1983 meta-analysis that included 23 studies regarding the efficacy of the Feingold diet, which eliminates food colors, MSG, and other additives, concluded that the effects were too small to be important which led to two decades of public and professional skepticism towards the value of dietary intervention in ADHD, which is very sad. But in a more recent meta-analysis of 15 double-blind placebo-controlled studies, plus six others for their supplemental analysis, researchers concluded that there was a reliable effect linking synthetic colors to ADHD symptoms in parent ratings, but not necessarily in teacher ratings. The red food dye, boom, 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 another, <laughs> another villain, right? Yeah, we've yeah. heard these studies, we've seen these studies, and, you know, parents know that their kids can behave differently at school compared to home. And I think there's a lot to unpack from those research studies. One being that the parents knew that they weren't giving their children those things, and so they were maybe looking for differences. Also, because we do know, like, when teachers are told that a pay, a patient is on a medication, even if it's placebo, they will report less symptoms as well. So perception of what our kids are doing is important as well to think about. But I, I'm not trying to minimize those rules. It's just that those studies are messy because people are messy and complicated. But, you know, sometimes it can be tricky to tell what's affecting what. All foods containing artificial colors are obviously processed foods, um, which we already know processed foods are not ideal diet. Yet we know it's all around us, especially in the school lunch program as well. That's a, and we know that for some families, they rely on the school lunch program to help with their family and their food. So helping educate not just our patients, but also our community about the impact that it can have on people. I think pretty much anyone who's let a kid eat a whole bowl of um, I won't list one, so I won't be in trouble for putting shaming a bowl of cereal, but, you know, colorful, sugarful um, breakfast cereal. And then they are going to start having behavioral issues and, you know, they're going to start misbehaving. You know, it's hard to tell. Is that from the dye, the sugar, the gluten, the milk, that free form glutamate that we just talked about? 
even uh, maybe even because some of those fortified um, just fortified cereals have fortified grain products, which have some added vitamins and minerals that can actually cause other problems. So it's hard to tell, but we do know that food dye has been implicated in ADHD symptoms. And I would say both through the research and anecdotally with um, my patients, those that reduce the red food dye in their diets often will report reduction in symptoms. And again, you know, is it because they're reducing processed food in general? or, you know, the types of things that red food dye are in or food dye in general are in. I think that's still being sussed out, but it's important to think about. So in 2018, a report published in the journal Pediatrics, the authors noted that the FDA set acceptable daily intakes for each of the nine artificial colors used in foods. However, the original safety approval for the color additives are based on animal studies not human studies, and they don't include neurological or neurobehavioral outcomes. And Dr. Mercola has a really nice article describing what each of the different colors is used for and what animal studies show with regards to their health when consumed in large quantities. And this is where it's kind of like individualism really takes place because for some kids and adults, artificial food dyes are problematic. And for other people, we don't see any issues with it. But that base, just why are they problematic for individuals, and what are they doing to the brain? Right. So why are you know why some kids and adults have um, problems with artificial food dyes and others don't? And that really kind of goes back to that neurodiversity that we have in our genetics but also in our resiliency factors. I will say that we know that food dyes are thought to be neuroexcitatory or neurotoxic to our brain. And I kind of want to go back to the FDA, not to um, bombard them too much, but there's plenty of things that the FDA has actually found in small quantities, can be carcinogenic, um, have found to have deleterious effects, but because it's under that amount, they allow it. Um, microwave popcorn is a perfect example. It's fully well known that the substance that they used to put in the microwave popcorn bags to coat was cancerogenic. However, they there was lobbies in the food industry that let them wean that off over time because they already had made so much and they didn't have an alternative yet. And I just like, I, you double you know, do double take when you hear that. So I don't know if I'm totally going to rely completely on the FDA to make those decisions of health for me. Also, you forget that the liver holds everything. So the liver likes to hold things that it thinks it might need later. It doesn't quite know that you might not need dye later. And so when we accumulate those and accumulate different substances in our liver, and then maybe we go through a liver fast or we start to lose weight or other things like that, it can be released into our system in large quantities and cause problems as well. So we know for at least like blue one, it does, we think can cross that blood brain barrier. And um, we know that that can kind of do like a short circuit in our brain, kind of like a pinball machine. So that's, we know that. And we also know that, like I said, this can cause those ADHD symptoms or make them worse or less manageable. In 2007, Lancet did a big study showing that kids with ADHD do react to juices that either had like that sodium benzoate or the artificial colors or both. And they went ahead and um, did that to other juices that did not have them. So like with those random controlled trials. 
this is part of the reason why in Europe, the UK, France, they ban artificial colors and foods. So we're a little behind the times and the other countries, you know, are saying, hey, we don't want this in our foods, especially in our kid foods. Well, and most studies regarding the safety of artificial colors have been done on rats. And this can be problematic because a rat's brain is different, thank goodness. And while some artificial colors appear to be for a rat, tartrazine or yellow number five definitely shows some concerns when it comes to their brain health. And in rats, it does act as a neurotoxin and it causes problems with spatial memory, which is what we need to orient ourselves in our environment. It's how a mouse gets through those complicated mazes that we talked about earlier, but it's how we get around and we can drive without needing Google Maps every time we go from home to work or work to home. Well, don't knock Google. Yeah, don't knock Google Maps. Some of us need them all the time, like me. <laughs> I get lost and lost without them, but and I don't usually have a lot of yellow food dye in my diet. But we also know that um, it can decrease brain trend levels and also increase cell death or, um, in the brain as well. So that's is that creates cell death in my brain. So Dr. Hansen, can you explain a little bit more on how a decrease in neurotransmitters might affect the brain? Uh, maybe we just cover like serotonin and dopamine real briefly. So I think a better way to answer that question, not to re-answer your question, but I think a better way might be what do neurotransmitters do in the brain? And then you can see how a decrease in those would do the opposite effect. So serotonin, that's a common neurotransmitter I think a lot of people hear about. You know, that creates calmness under pressure, positive mood. It helps regulate your sleep. It helps regulate your appetite. And we hear a lot about serotonin. One, 80 to 90% of serotonin is made in the gut. So it does have the most implication um, with food and it is very sensitive to our diet and serotonin production and gut and gut issues like we talked about before medical conditions but also you you know people hear about serotonin and SSRIs which is you know selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors for anxiety and depression so SSRIs work by increasing those postsynaptic levels of serotonin by inhibiting the reuptake. So they, they increase the levels and therefore decrease our anxiety and depression. So you can see that if you're decreasing serotonin, you're going to have an increase in that anxiety and depression, but you're also going to have problems with sleep and also appetite regulation. And we know that when we add in serotonin or a precursor like L-tryptophan or 5-HTP, we can actually help people lose weight and increase um, levels of or decreased levels of depression and anxiety as well. So so those natural boosting levels of serotonin. So if you start doing things that are neurotoxic to your brain, decreasing those neurotransmitters either at the gut or the brain level, you're going to have an impact on that calmness and positive mood and sleep and appetite. I think another neurotransmitter that gets talked about, especially in ADHD, is dopamine. And you know, dopamine is it works in conjunction with norepinephrine and it works on alertness or concentration, energy, and mood regulation as well. And that when we have lower levels of dopamine, we start having problems with attention, with regulation. We, it's actually, we end up having a problem with inhibiting because we have too much stuff coming in. So that's an important neurotransmitter and talked a lot about. Interestingly enough, vitamin C, magnesium, zinc, those are important to create dopamine. And so when we have deficiencies, I think 
Brenna, you and I have seen that a lot of our patients with ADHD have those magnesium and zinc deficiencies, and that's also what we see in the literature as well. So that's important. And then I GABA is kind of one of my it's not talked a lot about, but I think it's a really important neurotransmitter because GABA helps with that kind of calm feeling. You know, GABA um, synthesis is seen in like benzodiazepines, which are like Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Valium. You know, we use those to treat anxiety, panic attacks, insomnia, and they bind to those GABA receptors. But there's also food that has naturally sourced GABA. And magnesium also helps boost those natural levels of GABA in our central nervous system. So, you know, it can add to that calm feeling. So as you know, as you can imagine, decreasing those neurotransmitters um, affects the brain, you know, by increasing those issues with alertness or mood and um, sleep and appetite. People might be wondering, okay, so if we suspect that artificial colors or preservatives are causing problems what do we do? But the answer is full and not always easy, especially when kids are involved. And really, first, we have to start reading our food labels and anything that has an ingredient in it that is stated as something like Lake Blue or Red Dye 40 should not be added to our shopping cart. And for kids and adults who are not yet willing to switch to a mostly whole, unprocessed Foods diet, this might mean skipping the name brand cereals and certain like morning toaster pastries and instead <laughs> choosing a different brand of fruity cereal or toaster pastry. So I'm going to co- totally call it out because it's actually a joke in our family. If you've watched Toy Story 1, Sid, the toy breaker, his mother, there's a scene where his mother screams, Sid, come and get your Pop-Tarts, you know, and then the next frame is the boy with his mother, the good little boy and his mother, and she has this eggs and like a pancake with fruit in the way of a smiley face. And so I always use that as the example for my children for why I'm not going to create doll toy breakers by feeding them pop tarts. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you love my correlation? So, but it is funny. It's a, come and get your pop tarts. Now I know that they're convenient and easy and cereal is easy and convenient, but I always tell parents that what you pay for in the end sometimes isn't worth it, you know, and just do an experiment, see how that goes. Be, you know, be willing I think, Brenna, you also say this to our patients, like kind of an 80-20 rule sometimes, like if you're willing to be off of it for a little while, heal the get, gut, and then come back and, and you decide, you know, inserting it here and there, knowing that you're going to see a consequence, right? Mm-hmm. But yes. Those dyes are sneaky too, because they get put in in places that you wouldn't imagine. So yeah, I would expect it in a yellow popsicle food, you know, yellow bright popsicle, but I wouldn't maybe expect it in pickles or ice cream, even chocolate chips they've added in yellow. So, you know, red dyes in like chocolate syrup. It's a lot of times in medications. So people don't even think about that, like that taste and the color of medications. In fact, you can, just so you know, you can if you have a medication or prescription medication and they and they make it a liquid form for your child, just ask them to not include the red food dye. They can do that for you. So, and blue dye is found in toothpaste, right? You know, yeah. um, it's found in sports drinks, even marshmallows, things that don't look blue. So, so you just really have to read those labels and, you know, that's, it's not that they're, um, and then we have natural color foods though, like if you've ever used 
beets. You can red beets make beautiful colors. Um, I've done some things like turmeric as a can be used as a color. Um, these are natural beta carotene. There's lots of paprika. There's lots of things that can have a natural color in it as well. So we can have colorful foods. We just don't need to have those fake food um, artificial dyes that are creating the problem. So. So the last nutrient that we're going to talk about today that can potentially cause brain inflammation or alter how the brain works is folate or folic acid. And I'm sure a lot of women are familiar with this important nutrient and may remember that their OB recommended that they take a prenatal vitamin with folic acid in it to prevent birth defects while they were pregnant. Now, what many people do not know, and what I am just now learning, is that the synthetic form of, known as folic acid does not work for all people and can potentially induce ADHD symptoms in some kids. Yeah, that's right. So you can even get some genetic testings for the the MTHFR gene, which, um, so like, I can help understand. So 5-MTHF is implicated in tyrosine to dopa, which then makes dopamine, which remember we talked about dopamine helps with alertness, concentration, energy, and mood regulation. 5-MTHF also is in the production of tryptophan to 5-HTP, which then comes to serotonin. So it can affect both of these. And Attitude, which is a great resource for people with kids with um, or people with ADHD or parents of children with ADHD, they have really done a great job of several articles talking about the gene, um, the MTHFR gene that's important in that folate metabolism. And we know that the specific gene can lead to an increased risk of ADHD and even autism. So the um, what happens is the MT, M, sorry, MTHFR genes control the biological process in the body that affects neurological function. And then those MTHFR abnormalities, they've been linked to several disorders as well. And they're seen, they're seen predominantly in individuals with ADHD-like symptoms, but also with mood regulation issues as well. So kind of like the ADHD plus kids, we, we do see this. And you can be tested for this. And then you can... Um, go ahead and compensate for it because what happens is this gene tells the body how to make the enzyme and that enzyme then turns folate um, or folic acid into a bioavailable form, an active form, methylfolate. And that um, process is called methylation. And we're learning a lot about the process of methylation and how it can impact how we convert amino acids into um, neurotransmitters. So if that's like too much too over your head, just know that this is important in creating those neurotransmitters that we talked about, serotonin and dopamine, that help with the um, mood and concentration. So that methylfolate converts to, like I said, those tr um, precursors to those neurotransmitters that help us feel good, help regulate mood, sleep, help regulate concentration. Well, and many people have alterations or mutations in their MTHFR gene that make them less efficient at converting folate into methylfolate. So there is the C677T and the A1298C variants. And they're pretty common. In some ethnicities, more than 50% of people have at least one copy of one of these variants. And I did some, and I know that I have one copy of the C677T. And my guess is it probably came from my mom's side of the family, but who knows? And it doesn't it's matter. always the mother. It's always the mother's problem. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
Um, but these mutations can decrease the body's ability to turn folate into methylfolate from anywhere between 10 to 50%. So someone can have lots of folate in their body and not enough methylfolate. This can then lead to a buildup of something called homocysteine, which increases the risk of heart disease, cancer, and even mood disorders. And I was very familiar with the heart disease connection to this, but really just in the last several months is when I started hearing more about this mood disorder piece of it. Because MTHFR also aids in the process of detoxification in our bodies. So if it's not working properly, something like heavy metals or mineral levels can increase, which might cause symptoms like hyperactivity and other mood disorders. So there's a lot of connections between folate, the MTHFR gene, and problems in the brain. Yeah, I've had more and more patients of mine tell me you know, that they've been genetically tested. And thank you for sharing, um, Brenna, your your genome copy. Oh boy! <laughs> so, um, and you know, the good news is is that tells us about vulnerabilities, and we can do things to help uh, help with that and make it so that we can have some common some attack against. I guess let me say that again. The good news is is that when knowledge is power and once you know that you have that then you can make some changes in your dietary and supplements and nutraceuticals to combat that the um so if someone had one or two of these mthfr mutations they're not able to effectively activate the folic acid and so you know we tell people that um increase folic acid for brain protection but that wouldn't make sense to do that with them to increase that. And instead, they would probably benefit from taking a different supplement and the activated form of 5-methylfolate. So it's um, because remember, they're missing that enzyme. So we don't want them, we wanted to help break that process down for them. That's right. So it's important um, if you have that information, it is important to use that information and know that it, you know, it can help you. We do have some offer, offer some solutions for it. Yeah. Well, I have a friend who she knew that she had, I think, two co two different, I'm not 100% sure, but she had some of these uh, SNPs, uh, mutations with her genes, and she was struggling with her son who had some behavioral difficulties. And once she learned this, did a little research, she started to remove foods that contained added folic acid and then started giving him a supplement containing that activated methylfolate. And she noticed that he was much more settled, he was less angry, he was more engaged with the family. So just like, I think it took a couple days, maybe even a couple weeks, but it made a big difference for him. And if you think that there might be a connection between you or your child's ADHD or other mood disorders and a potential MTHFR mutation, just start by removing the products in your home that have added folic acid. And you're going to see this listed in the ingredients list as enriched flour. So enriched flour is when they list that flour and then added these vitamins and minerals back into it. And you're going to see that in cereal, bread, crackers, pasta, even breaded meats like chicken tenders or fish sticks. So there are plenty of brands that do not use enriched flour. You just have to look for them. 
And here in the Twin Cities, we have some stores called Fresh Time. We've also got the different co-ops, um, Whole Foods. And I know at Fresh Time specifically, they have a fair number of products that do not contain that added folic acid. But the biggest challenge for my patients when they're dealing with this is actually school breakfasts and school lunches. And I kind of feel like that is the common thread when dealing with any elimination diet. Um, yeah, a whole nother podcast. School. Yes. Um, <laughs> but also going to their friends' homes where they might be served snacks or meals um, that contain folate fortified products. Yeah, you know, Sometimes we're a little bit behind in science and helping our communities understand that. I think these were done with good intentions, just like some of the fluoride, added fluoride studies. It was done with good intentions, but we're seeing the impact of that, of those enriched flowers and what they can do for some people. You know, what can, like I'm thinking about this in like school lunches and eating with friends and I can't control all of what my children eat. And I know parents of my patients can't control what their kids always eat. So I know you've worked with some of our patients on on being able to help mitigate some of that, but still being able to live a little. So what are some of the things that you've done with them? Well, one parent in particular has worked really hard with her school's, with her son's school cafeteria in finding hot dog and hamburger buns that do not contain folic acid. So he can still eat some of his favorite lunches with his friends and not have to pack a lunch every day. Uh, if she knows that he's going to go to a friend's house and that they're going to have pizza, she found a frozen pizza brand that he can eat as well. And then some other snack foods. And she just packs that up and sends it with him. And that has worked really well for them. But, you know, just like many other families, it's hard to always plan ahead. And sometimes he does end up eating something that has folic acid in it. And she knows that his behavior, depending upon how much he gets into his system, is not going to be optimal for the next one to two days. Yeah, this is, you know, this is something I hear. And we sometimes have to just kind of weigh those risks and benefits and help educate our kids, just like we talked about how that one teen patient had an aha moment themselves. And now, for the most part, just has found workarounds and doesn't you know, does, is very strict with herself because she doesn't want to have the complications and the implications and consequences of having those food sensitivities for her. You know, it's starting to become more mainstream for physicians to know about the connection between the MTHFR gene and mood disorders and ADHD neurodevelopmental issues. You can always ask them to test um, you or your child or your loved one with a simple blood test, or you can do like the 23andMe genetic test or other gene tests. Just go, you know, Google it, you can find some companies that look at it. Now, the research, you know, the health implications can be conflicting. And of course, I've called out 23andMe. Of course, they're going to say, hey, just so you know, we're not 100% sure about these health implications. But we do know that for some people with these mutations, they do experience negative health and brain consequences. And so it's important to at least be educated about that. That's right. As with so many things in our health and diet, there is no one size fits all. And that makes our jobs interesting and challenging. And it can make patients really frustrated. And parents wonder why it is that what worked for Johnny and his ADHD doesn't really seem to be helping their little Billy. Or why did making one change help marry your best friend, but it hasn't helped you? Well, it's a big combination of of our genetics, meeting our life and our environment and a whole host of other things. 
Yep. The biopsychosocial model is what I like to say. And we can't blame it on one things, but they're all working in tandem. But again, knowing more about how your brain works and how your body works is going to help you live a more optimum life and, and maybe address some of the issues that you're seeing and you want to you want to be able to see some improvement in your life. So I think we probably have talked enough. So maybe as we wrap things up, I want to thank you, Leanne, for letting me have a chance to sit with Brenna and talk over um, some of the things we love. I don't get a chance to get two full hours with Brenna. So it's great. We hope that you know, today that you guys as listeners just have some more understanding and think about why certain foods and certain additives might affect your mental health or emotional health of you or loved ones. If you want to learn more about me or Brenna, you can look us up on the Stepping Stone Clinic website. We have other practitioners, like we said, too. So it's um, Stepping Stone Clinic MN as in Minnesota. And we're on Facebook and Instagram, I think, as well. I've heard I heard under hashtag Stepping Stone Clinic MN and Stumble to Step, I think, is one of our our hashtags that we use. And you can see some more information and, and look into how some of our patients use testing, both brain testing and also lab testing to answer some of these questions and come up with a plan for them. Fantastic. Well, thank you to you, Dr. Hansen, and thank you again to Leanne for letting us take over. And we hope everybody stays healthy and has a happy rest of their spring. Yep. Yep. Best wishes and well-being for sure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great episode, right? I just love when we have two guests taking over the show and talking back and forth. It's just so awesome. Sunday, July 26th, we have episode 261, where my friend Dr. Nina Lewis-Larsen is taking over the show. We are sharing a Q&A that our Happy Keto Body VIPs received a couple of months ago. Now, we do monthly Q&As, um, so we just wanted to share a coaching call audio with you so you could see behind the scenes and how it's all created and what our VIPs receive. Plus, you're going to get a bunch of answers to common questions that many women get stuck on while they're following a ketogenic diet. Also, Sunday, August 2nd, episode 262, I am answering all of your questions in a Q&A. So if you have questions for me and you want them answered in our August episode, head on over to healthfulpursuit.com slash contact submit your question and I will try to answer it um, and really look forward to these episodes. So I will see you soon and I hope you have a great rest of your day. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. Join us again in a couple of days to discover more Keto for Women secrets for your fat-fueled life. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, nutrition, and diet and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor should it be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representations or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified physician for medical advice and always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program. 